Will you grab your Bibles with me and turn to the letter of James? You'll find it in the back of your, of your Bible, the back of the New Testament, just after Hebrews, just before 1 Peter. As we continue our sermon series through the letter of James that, we, that I'm calling Faith at Work. And today I've titled today's sermon, Steadfast Under Trial. And we're going to study just verse 12 today of chapter 1. James 1, verse 12. Look at it with me. It says this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God promised to those who love him. Here in verse 12, James is circling back to the first point he makes in his letter opening that we find in verse 2 through 4. Let's read that together and see the similarities of counsel. Verse 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The mention of trials is in both places. Being steadfast in those trials is also driving emphasis in both places. The reality of trials in this life makes this topic worth digging into further. I praise God that you ordained in multiple places of James' letter to speak to this topic. And it will bless us to dig further into this topic because steadfast faith in the midst of trials is surely something we need to be better equipped in in the journey that is before us until he takes us home to be with him in glory. So let's dig deep into this great verse, verse 12, and see what God has for us this morning. The opening verse 12 says, blessed is the man. First, we have to have a better understanding of the word blessed. Because it means so much more than a little happiness in the midst of a tough life. Blessing means divine favor. God's favor upon us is true blessing. Blessing doesn't mean circumstantial benefit. But culturally, we have turned that word to mean that. And in doing so, I think really use it out of context. I'll prove it to you. When someone asks you how you're doing, sometimes what we'll say is, I'm blessed. And and what do we mean when we say this? Now, if you're honest, often what you quickly did in your mind is in the Rolodex of of your life, you just kind of ran through, okay, well, how am I doing? How am I, my family, my my money, my health, my job, my my schedule? And and then I say, well, if that's all good, oh, I'm so blessed. Look at all these blessings. Or, Or if you're really struggling, you know, maybe you'll lie and say, oh, I'm fine. You know, fine, that's that weak answer. That doesn't really mean what you ever mean it to mean. Um, 
But really what we're giving is, is, is an evaluation of our circumstances. If I'm healthy, if I've got money in the bank, if my family's near, I'm blessed. But what about the guy who's financially low, whose family is dead, who is constantly dealing with physical ailments? Could that guy honestly say that he is blessed? Not if he's only counting blessing as his circumstantial reality. But he could honestly say he was blessed if that blessing meant something different. If it meant divine favor. If that individual knew God because of saving grace and the work of Christ, he was a believer in Jesus. But, but we get so focused on thinking that blessing is circumstantial. And so when our circumstances are bad, we're, we're then quick to run to God and double down. And so we, we'll go to God in prayer. And we'll go, God, I'm kind of struggling here. Could you just bless me a little bit? And do you see what we did again? We, we called blessing the things he might give us or, or the changes he might make to our circumstances and and in this often what we do is we end up treating God more like a really rich grandpa (laughs) who who sends who's really good about sending a check when we're running low oh yeah yeah no problem I, I got it and we treat him more like that than than who he is our holy father who who loves us who has saved us I mean, think about it for a moment. We'll, we'll go to God in prayer and we'll say, God, bless the food. Will you bless the food? We even call the prayer before the meal the blessing. Where do we get that? That's not necessarily a biblical idea. We say things like, we're going to bless the food. Or, hey, wait, wait, hold on. Have we blessed the food yet? Like the food's toxic unless you pray to bless the food first. God, make this food nourish our bodies. God made food to nourish your body. You know, unless your diet is one that totally ends in Eidos, Cheetos, Doritos, Ho-Hos, then that's not really going to bless you. But it's food's meant to bless your body. But, but we, we don't necessarily think about these mantras or these things we say. and What do they mean? <sighs> Has God not blessed us with the food we're about to pray for? Right? Our, our prayer church before a meal is... Not to do something to the food that hasn't been done. It's to thank the one who provided it. It's to reorient our hearts before we consume and enjoy. It's to protect us from putting all of our affections into the food itself or or the person who made it. No, it's a desire to pause and say we want to acknowledge the one who ultimately made this, the one who created these flavors, the one who provided these things. We want to ask, 
We want, we want to turn our hearts to him. We want to thank him. We want to come with gratitude before we just jump in. That, that's why we pray. So maybe instead of, hey, has anyone blessed the food? Maybe what we start saying is, has anyone thanked God for, for this food we're about to eat? might be a little bit of more of a correct way to consider these things and to, to reorient where we're at. Um, how often are we guilty of going, God, God, we just bless me. We bless my family. We bless our church. And, and maybe what we're really saying to God there is, God, will you give me more than, 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 I, than I really need, maybe than I think I need? Will you just will you bless me more than what you've already done or that I already have? But the, but the Bible is clear that those who are saved in Christ have every spiritual blessing. You are possessors of it. I, I got into this a few weeks ago. If if you're just catching up with us, I encourage you to go back to our podcast and maybe hit press play and get your Bible out and you're only a few weeks behind on this new series, so start at the top and understand why we preach the way we do through God's word, verse by verse, and, and, and see where we've been in just the first few weeks. But, so I'm not going to get into that today, but, but I do want to remind us that we were possessors of every spiritual blessing. All the Old Testament blessings upon the people are fulfilled in Christ, that in Christ we are blessed the holy God has shown us favor like we could have never dreamed of by providing us salvation while we were his enemies. He put the wrath we deserved on his perfect and holy son who willingly died in our place. And in this, he secured for us eternal victory over sin and an eternal relationship with him. Church, we are so blessed in Christ alone. What could God do to make his face shine upon me or to show his favor to me more than salvation in Christ? And the answer is nothing. We are blessed. And so instead of going to God all the time in prayer and saying, hey, God, can you just give me a little blessing? Our response, our, our, our approach to God constantly should be a heart of gratitude and satisfaction. To say, thank you for blessing me. Lord, I want to bless you. I, I want to share the blessing you've given me with others. Now, does that mean we don't ask God for things? No, it doesn't. God's word is clear that we're to bring our supplication, bring our request. But I just want to encourage you to consider where your heart's at, that we would recognize how blessed we are. He doesn't owe us anything. Are we to ask for a request? Yeah. But say, God, will you bless me? I think sometimes is our way of saying, I don't really understand that I am totally blessed, that my heart is fixed on that blessing. You owe me nothing, and yet you've called me to bring my request, and so I will. And I'll trust it to you. Our, our prayer for Disciples Church is not bless us. <laughs> we are blessed. God, may we be a blessing. That, that's our prayer as a church. 
May we honor you and worship you for all the blessing you've bestowed upon us in Christ. So, just take some inventory and just be honest. I'm not going to pull you out loud, but I just want you to do business. When you think of how blessed you are, what do you often think of? And, and I kind of want to wreck you a little bit today because if what comes to mind often is your stuff and your comforts and the ease of life, then maybe, maybe you're missing what the real blessing is because what we should think of, when we think how blessed we are, we should think of Jesus. And everything else is what he's entrusted to us to steward, to manage for his glory and his purposes. And so the really rich, really healthy, really big family guy is not more blessed than, than the guy who's constantly fighting sickness, is constantly dealing with poverty. If both are saved in Christ, they're, they're blessed with every spiritual blessing in heaven. And, and, and to see rightly that blessing, to not make the circumstances of their life their blessing count, will do your faith journey so much good. The cross should make us overwhelmed with gratitude every day. I love it when I run into a brother or sister in Christ. You ask them how they're doing, and they say, I'm blessed. And, and maybe as pastor, because I know maybe some of the intimate details of many of your lives, I know what they're going through. In circumstantial language, has been an utter nightmare. And yet what's on their heart is the blessing of who they are in Christ. And that they're not counting how good their life is based on their circumstances, but who they are in Christ. Let me just pick on one more funky tradition that we've bought into since we're on the topic. When someone sneezes, what do we say? Say, God bless you, or bless you. But do you know why? The large understanding of that practice is not anything biblical or, or honoring of the Lord. It is highly pagan and superstitious. Uh, many different philosophies of where it came from. One popular one is back in the day, Rome was going through this season of bubonic plague. It was raging through Europe. And one of the symptoms of the plague was coughing and sneezing. And so Pope Gregory I or Gregory the Great suggested saying, hey, God bless you to people as a person sneezed, hoping that the prayer would protect them from certain death. Or the expression originates out of superstition where uh, there's this custom where, where people kind of thought, like by sneezing, some of your spiritual like tank was let out. And so when people say bless you, they're like stuffing it back in. They're, they're trying to return the blessing. No, I'm, I'm not even joking. I'm not even making this up. This is the superstitious origin of that phrase. And some of you are like, oh, pastor, I'm really uncomfortable with you picking at that. And the reason why is not because you're super bought into it, but because you're just super studied for that being your route response like when someone sneezes like you're it's offensive in a big room if no one says god bless you like oh how dare all these people not put some blessing back in that person for sneezing 
Uh, watch it. Next time you watch, you're in a room and so no one says it. Like even the a guy on the stage will go, oh, hold on. I'll time out for my talk. I'll do it. Hey, bless you, man. And so some people believe it's like a protection from evil spirits. I mean, it just goes on and on. But these are man-made superstitions and, and ignorantly follow the culture. Church, you're not obligated to say anything if someone sneezes. There's other things that the body does that you don't ever comment when it happens. Okay? And you're not obligated to. (laughs) I don't think you'll be shunned. People might think of you really weird. Like, there's only two of you in the car. This guy sneezes. You say nothing. The guy's sitting there going, oh, how offensive. When James says, blessed is the man. He's saying this person is known by God and is blessed by God. In other words, what I'm about to say is not something you do to receive blessing. It's a really casual way we can read this. But what I'm about to say is the evidence of one who is blessed by God. Evidence you belong to God and therefore are blessed. Okay? So right out the door. We've got to make sure we're seeing this through the right lens. Let's now see what he says next. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Remaining steadfast here means remaining full of faith in God. The steadfastness that is referred to is a perseverance of faith. It is your faith remaining at work, even under the pressures of trials in life. It is the person who continues to trust God, that's your faith, when you can't see through your bad circumstances steadfastness is remaining confident in God. So the man who's blessed is the man who has saving faith and works that saving faith ongoingly in the midst of trial. There's a remaining of the faith, an ongoing outplay of the faith, of trusting God, of depending on God. So you're in a small boat and a 40-foot wall of water is headed your way. But as your increased trial approaches, you know in your heart of hearts that God is at work and on the throne. You trust him to work perfectly in this horrific pending moment of struggle. You know that you are his. You know that he will not forsake you nor waste one moment of your life, but will work all things according to his plan. Often, I find many who claim Christ will talk about their faith being worked out in moments of great trial. Loved one is dying of cancer. They're in their last moments. We're praying for healing. Our fit, we believe 
in God. We trust in God. Sometimes what people mean by that is that by their strong faith, they believe God will heal the person. And the faith equals a result that we want. The essence of your faith is to trust the situation to God. Not to trust that God will do what you want him to do. So please, please, please see that rightly. Your faith at work in the midst of the 40-foot wall of water coming at you in your small dinghy is not that God's going to cause you to get through it necessarily. He can. But you trust Him. You know He's at work. You know He will not forsake you. That not forsaking you, that never letting us down, it is not, doesn't mean that all of life will go our way. Do you, do you realize that? Please, please, please don't think that when you're singing that line in that song. Lord, you'll never let me down. If some of you are thinking that way, maybe some of you are struggling with it, but God, you've let me down here, 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 and here. It, it means in Christ you've been scooped up by the holy hands of God. You are secure in his powerful grip for eternity, and he will never let you go. He will never forsake you. He'll never turn away from you. If he saved you, you are his. It doesn't mean you won't experience great trial. It doesn't mean you won't experience great loss. That's not what we mean by you will never let me down. If that's your belief of God, then your faith and your religion, your practice, everything's out the door the moment it doesn't go your way. No wonder why many people think that way about God and then leave the church or leave the faith because they turn God into a puppeteer of their own desires. Your faith is trusting him. You know that you're his. You know that he won't forsake you nor waste one moment of your life but work all things according to his plan. Romans 8.28 says this so well. And we know. We believe. We have faith. That for those who love God as opposed to those who hate him or are against him, those who have been saved, those who are his. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We don't use that verse to, to believe that everything's going to work out the way we want it to. We, we declare that verse in the midst of great trial to remind ourselves that we trust him. And that he's at work for our good and his glory, even in ways and times that we never might even see or know in this life. Church, your faith is not meant to be a one-time experience, but a lifelong way of living after you're saved. It's meant to go to work at your salvation and never stop. We are to walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. To walk, to live every day, every moment of every day. This is steadfastness. This is faith at work. 
So what does he say next? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, when he has stood the test. Stood the test is finishing language. He's about to say what happens when we finish with faith. So steadfast faith is faith that continues every day. Now James is referencing to when you finish your race in faith, meaning you have walked by faith and not by sight. You have remained in faith despite your trials. You have now finished in faith. Now understand what's never said in any of these scriptures about faith is that it's perfect. Meaning it's never without slipping or falter. We are still at war with our flesh, even though we're saved by grace and empowered with saving faith in God. So that means the greatest Christian is still going to have moments of struggling doubt. When James says he's stood the test, it doesn't mean you, you didn't fall down along the way, even slide back or experience some detours. You, you might have stopped. You might have pulled over. You might have taken a detour. But the point is you found your way back to the path of righteousness. Back to the call of God on your life. Back to the church. Back to growing and helping others grow in Christ. Back to trusting in God despite the trials you face. You must never forget who empowers your faith. If true saving faith, God gave you that faith. It's a gift. And so we're dependent on him. 1 Peter 1.5, by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's an enduring, a, a perseverance, a standing through the trial that God does in all of his redeemed. Again, it's not perfection, but it is, it is lasting. And this is why the life of the Christian is one of repentance. When we sin, when we falter, we see that sin and we confess it and we turn and to the ways of the Lord. Why the so much of the scriptures call the church to, to speak into each other's lives, to walk together, to call each other to repentance, to trusting in God and remaining in faith. The security that we have in God doesn't mean that the, there is no battle, but it does mean God protects our eternal standing with him with infallible precision and omnipotent power. God is the one who inspires and nourishes and strengthens and endures our faith. God is the power behind and, and unto the finishing of our faith. So praise God for this. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, it says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
a race that is filled with trials, as we're seeing again and again. And we do this by looking to Jesus. And who is he? He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Can the truly saved fall away, be taken away, be lost, or abandon ship? There are many in the modern Christianity who believe so, but it is not biblical. The answer is no. The truly saved will persevere in faith, will finish in faith. For those whom God elects, gives new birth, gives saving faith, gives justification, gives adoption, will one day be given glory. He does not err in this. He does not make a mistake. Jesus did not drop one ounce of blood for someone he thought might be saved, but then end up they denied him. It's not how God works. God is perfect. Romans 8.30. We just spoke of Romans 8.28 a minute ago. Here's verse 30. These whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Slaves of sin, whom he rescued from bondage, purchased for himself, will remain secure and protected in his household forever. Hear Jesus' words speak of standing the trial, of finishing in faith, And let Jesus' words be a rock under your feet. Hear his declaration of his work for his sheep. John 10, 27-29 My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, them all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Amen? Jesus' blood is big enough, complete enough, to cover all sin for those whom God intended it for. There is nothing we can do to get out from underneath the saving grace and enduring protection of God in eternity with him. The doctrine of perseverance of the saints is one of the most precious truths of Scripture to the born-again Christian. That we will persevere. The truly saved will persevere to the end. It is a great comfort to know and hope in and rest in that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6. Amen? James is adding to all the New Testament teachings in this essential doctrine that the saved will finish the race. James 1.12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test... When he has stood the test, when he has stood the test. In other words, his faith remained at work. It was true saving faith that finished. 
In this, he proves to be one of the truly saved. Not those who looked to be saved, but in the end walked away. John, 1 John 2.19 They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they are all not of us. The Bible does not say they were of us and then became not of us. It says when people walk away from their faith, they prove to have never been saved at all. God's saving work, his enduring work is perfect. His batting average is perfect. He loses none of whom he elects and saves. He keeps all of his saved ones. Do we know the saved condition? No, we, we're given evidences, we're given fruits, but at the end of the day, only God knows. But we, we keep praying. For someone who declared saving faith, we keep praying for their repentance and return if they walked away. And maybe we start to consider that maybe they never knew or had true saving faith in the gospel. Maybe what they had was religion. Many examples in scriptures of people doing religious things and then not proving to be saved. So just because they went to church, just because they had awesome Jesus tattoos, or just because they um, gave a lot of money, or other things that they might have done, doesn't mean that they're really saved. Part of that real evidence of saving faith is enduring faith. Will they stumble? Will they fall? Sure. But they will repent and turn back to the Lord and continue to trust in Him. How long those moments are, you know, different. But they will finish in faith. Church, this is good news to the true believer because if you're truly saved, you will endure. It means you will endure the hardship you're currently facing. You will find a way to repent of the sin you are currently entangled in and no longer keep it to yourself. You will endure. You will come back from being off course. Repent and believe is not just a command to the unbeliever, but for all the household of God. It is for every person that is a true believer. It is an ongoing practice of repentance and belief. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Likely what James has in view here is less of a crown of royalty, gold, more of a reference to an athletic victory, more of a wreath. In that day, the wreath was placed on the victor's head, symbolizing triumph. This is James' way of saying, you prove to be included in the victory of Christ. Paul uses the term this way in 1 Corinthians 9.25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. 
So he's speaking of that athletic aim for the one who runs the race to receive the perishable wreath. But in Christ, there is an imperishable wreath, crown of glory that symbolize our partnership with him, not only in his death for our sin, but in his resurrection victory over sin that we join him in. He is risen. Amen. If you lived your life in the true and lasting faith, God blessed you with at salvation, perseverance or remaining steadfast under trial doesn't result in salvation and eternal life, but perseverance and remaining steadfast under trial, hear this, is the result and evidence of salvation and one's eternal life. Back to the beginning. Blessed is the man. You have the favor of God when you prove to be truly his by remaining steadfast, by that faith he gave you that is ongoing and finishes, and you will receive the crown of life. 2 Timothy 4.8, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. A love for God, a true belief in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, crown of righteousness. Paul admonishes his understudy in 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life, to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Walk by faith, fight the good fight of faith, finish in faith, and in that, take hold of the eternal life to which you were saved, to which you were called. All this language points to the same thing. This is what James is saying. The saved, those in faith, those who prove they are of Christ because they finish in faith, will receive the crown of life. The crown of life also spoken of or called in Scripture the crown of glory, the crown of righteousness, is given to all believers as the Lord brings them into glory. To be clear, that that crown is not a part of the varying rewards that God's faithful receive for our stewardship of our lives, how we lived our lives in faith. That's a different kind of reward. This is a reward every believer receives. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Notice how James associates enduring faith under trial with genuine love for God. John repeatedly connects true love 
for God with genuine faith. You do not and you cannot truly love God without genuine faith. A number of clear truths spoken in John's first letter, 1 John 4.8, most famously says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 1 John 4.16, we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. 1 John 5.3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What do those who do not love God have? They don't have His blessing, His favor. Instead, they're cursed. They have His righteous curses, His condemnation, His wrath. 1 Corinthians 16.22 If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. The, the one who loves God obeys his commands, submits his life to Christ, who is the light. The one who stands against God, who hates God, doesn't necessarily go around saying, I hate God. But they do say that with their lives. They say that by being Lord of their own lives. By rejecting the word of God. Hearing it and rejecting it. Hearing it and rejecting it. Not trusting in his promises. John three nineteen through 20 And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So just as James is saying that those who are blessed, those who remain faithful even in trials, those who love God are recipients of the crown of life. The opposite is true of those who hate God by denying Christ. And instead of obeying his word, they do wicked things and their works are exposed, not as faith, but works of the flesh. Understand this. The genuine Christian is not someone who at one point in their life made a profession of faith in Christ, but then went about living their life as Lord of their own lives. 
went about living their life according to the flesh. But they are a person who demonstrates true faith by ongoing love for God and faith in God that is not undone by life's trials. No matter how severe, no matter how long they last. Now, it is easy for our flesh to get caught up in moments where we want to say, but what's in it for me? We get caught up in being overly focused on secondary prizes of eternity with God. Good things. Good things like there will be no more sickness in eternity with God. Uh, There will be no more death. These beautiful heavenly surroundings. The crown of life. The rewards God will bless us with for faithful service. But we must never exchange all that is secondary for what is primary and most satisfying, which is God himself. We must never lose sight of the pure reason why we serve God because we know him and we love him. James says, to those who love him. We walk by faith, remaining steadfast in faith. We finish in faith. For God. Not for some secondary benefit. Those benefits are sweet and amazing and to be cherished but God is the prize. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For this light momentary affliction you could say called life on earth in this temporary time in our exile. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The glory is not crowns or new bodies or the feast he's preparing. It is God in all of his glory for all of eternity. Amen? So, this is similar to our right understanding of blessing. God blesses us, but the greatest blessing is God himself. So, yes, God will crown us at our finish, but we don't see the crown as the prize. We see it as a symbol that we belong to him. That's the prize. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and this space that you've provided for us to worship you and study your holy word to fellowship together, to break bread, remember, celebrate your great sacrifice.
and the death of your son, Jesus Christ, on our, in our place. Lord, we are so thankful for the faith you've entrusted to us. A saving faith that trusts you with our lives despite the real and hard trials we face. Father, bless us today to see through the superficial grip that we can place on our circumstances that that maybe some of us in the room are guilty lately of being just so excited and thankful to you, God, because of a relationship or family situation or job situation. And while we want to say thank you to you for these great things that you've provided, that our hearts would remain fixed, that we are blessed in Christ, that we are secure and will receive the crown of glory because of your power and your perfection. I thank you for the promise that the truly saved will endure to the end, that we don't wonder we, we, we lean in, we grow, we repent, and we believe, and we continue. Because we trust in you, not ourselves. Because we trust in you, not our circumstances. And so, may we walk by faith. When, when the oceans rise, and the trials are coming hard and fast... our faith would abound when we don't get it that our faith in you would would thrive You, you, you blessed me in a very hard time of my life when my mom was dying in her 50s and passed at 60 when her disease of Alzheimer's didn't make sense when it was crippling her body her mind and the tide was rising all around and we were slowly saying goodbye to her for now You, you blessed me with this song to reorient my focus on you, to trust you in the midst of it all, to glory in you, for you are good and worthy to be praised. So hear us now, your people, as we sing, as we testify as we pray, as we confess our sin. And that maybe, just maybe, today is that day where the unsaved are saved by your holy grace. To repent and believe in Jesus as Lord. Be forever changed. In his holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.